Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. We are at the halfway point of the season. The all-star starters have been announced. Rising stars have been announced. And the trade deadline is coming up. It'll be here in a week. And we'll talk about some teams that continue their dominance over the season. But first, the all-star starters are announced. Who, uh, who are you surprised by? So I think that probably everyone would agree that the biggest surprise would be Andrew Wiggins making the starters. I'm not saying that he's not deserving of making the all-star team at all. I know that he's having a very good season, maybe the best season overall um, that he's ever had in his career, but I don't know that he is a starter. I guess the argument can be that since he's been on a team that has been regularly in the top one or two all year, and he's been the second best player on that team by many people's estimations, um, averaging 18.3 points per game, also shooting 41% from three on 5.5 attempts per game, 48% from the field overall, and also playing very good defense. So he is obviously having a very good year, but I think that a lot of people were surprised to see him be a starter, um, given how many players probably had a statistical edge over him. And I think the other big surprise um, probably being the snubs. I guess it's not that surprising because it happens every year, but Devin Booker not making the starters um, and then also getting both of the teams when these results were announced, the two number one teams at the time, the Heat and the Suns, neither one of those teams has an all-star starter. So it is a little bit surprising to see that the number one teams have no representation or at least the number one teams at the time. So when you think about him and the role that he's been playing, obviously he's been playing extremely well, as you alluded to, he's filling one of the forward roles for the starters. So as you look to other forwards in the league, who would you say should have been above him potentially? So if you're looking at strictly forwards, I know that his team has not had the same success but I think you could easily make a case that Carl Anthony Towns has been more deserving. If you consider him a forward, I mean, he plays the power forward a lot. So you could have easily slotted him in there and he's averaging 24.4 points per game, 9.5 rebounds per game, 3.9 assists. His PER 24.34 is also very impressive. He also is only shooting 1% lower than Andrew Wiggins is from three point range. He's shooting 40.9% from three on the year. And he's also shooting 51% from the field overall. So that's better than Wiggins also. I know that the Timberwolves are only, you know, marginally a playoff team, maybe sitting at 26 and 25 right now. But from a statistical standpoint, um, Carl Anthony Towns, I think resume is much, much better. Yeah. And I think that I, I would, kind of agree with you i do think that although they do say three forwards they usually try to look for a small forward power forward and a center and obviously like somebody who's going to be a cross between the two at some of these points but i, I think the only other person that i might have put in contention that's in the west would have been brandon ingram who's having 
a great season as well this year. Obviously, New Orleans is not doing well as a team, but Brandon Ingram, 22 points, better than Wiggins. His field goal percentage is lower than Wiggins on both regular field goal percentage and three-pointers, but his overall PER is better than Andrew Wiggins is. So I think Brandon Ingram has a case as well. I think he might make his first all-star game based off of his play and his performance. But I think that Wiggins, like you said, has been the second best player on the second best team within the West. And it's, it just shows that he got out of a bad situation being in Minnesota, obviously first drafted over to the Cavs, then traded over to Minnesota and now has been put into a role and a position where you have Clay coming back. He's still finding his groove, finding his rhythm. Draymond has been out for quite some time. He is the de facto number two. He's been excelling in this role now with Golden State. His overall percentages have increased each year that he's been there. He's been a better defensive guard as well or defensive forward. So I think good for Andrew Wiggins getting out of a bad situation and making the best out of a good one. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And then for the Suns fans that are, you know, pissed off that Devin Booker is seemingly getting snubbed again. Every I year. mean, it's, it's every year. But at the same time, you have to look at it kind of through the lens that you alluded to earlier. It also is a formatting issue. You only have two guard spots that you can really select. So, I mean, in the West this year, it was particularly rough. I know that Devin Booker is getting 25 points per game, 5.5 rebounds, 4.3 assists. I mean, obviously, all-star caliber numbers. But if you compare it to the guys who got the nods over him, Stephen Curry, I know he's still in a bit of a shooting slump right now. But even with that shooting slump, he still is averaging more points per game, uh, more assists per game, same number of rebounds per game, higher PER, and has largely, over the course of the year, been the better player. And I think that he's number one on his team 100%. Um, whereas Devin Booker, I mean, you could argue that maybe Chris Paul is probably more important to the overall success of the team. I mean, it's a pick em between those two guys. And then on the other hand, you have John Morant, who obviously has an amazing storyline this season, um, putting the Grizzlies from a team that was just kind of like a first-round entertainment to now a team that you actually have to consider is going to take any of the teams in the West, probably at least six games in any series. And he's also averaging 26 points per game, six rebounds and 6.8 assists. If anything, he's probably the most deserving of the three. So it's just unfortunate for book, but that's just the way it rolled out. The West was deep this year in the guards. I mean, look at Donovan Mitchell. He's got a case too, and he didn't get it. So, but we expect to see these guys obviously still make the all-star team just, um, didn't quite crack the starting lineup. Yep. And I think when you look overall at these teams and, and these starters, um, I think you had uh, Zach Levine making it over DeMar DeRozan, and I had DeMar DeRozan making it of the two Bulls picks. I think overall, and we'll have to look back at our show notes from episode four when we made our predictions, but we're mostly pretty spot on. I don't think anybody would have guessed Andrew Wiggins. He is like the Cinderella story of the bracket that busts everybody's bracket. So maybe a few. <laughs> well, Paul George was supposed to be healthy. That spot was Paul George's. So he did luck into that. Yeah. Well, I think Andrew Wiggins is the Loyola of a lot of people's all-star brackets. And you probably had some crazed Golden State Warriors fans that were saying, no, 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 this is his year. He's making it. That might have gotten <laughs> it. But I think everybody probably got an eight out of 10, nine out of 10 
for this one because a lot of these players, you knew Ja was going to have a big year this year. You knew Steph was coming back with a vengeance. Jokic is on his way to repeat for MVP. LeBron is going to start until he retires. And then on the Eastern Conference side, Durant, Antetokounmpo, and Embiid, all locks. And no then, brainers. And then you knew that DeMar, at, and by episode four, we knew that they were having a breakout season with the Bulls and uh, Trey Young. It's just being ice tray. So I, I think a lot of these were, were no-brainers and not big surprises. Uh, and we'll see what comes of the rest of the roster. But I think this will be a great all-star game, all-star weekend with a lot of new, young, fresh faces who are going to be donning those uh, new unis for the first time. Yeah, definitely not as many surprises on the East, as you mentioned. Um, mostly everything that you expected. Trey Young obviously having maybe one of the most statistically dominant seasons of any of the point guards in the NBA right now. Um, I think that for me, like you said, the one big surprise was when DeMar DeRozan got this nod over Levine. I chose Levine to get it over to Rosen because I truly do believe that Levine is probably the more talented offensive player of the two. However, um, despite natural ability, DeMar DeRozan has seemingly taken on that leadership role and kind of made the team his. He's the one that seemingly takes the shots at the end He's the one that actually has the scoring average of the two that is higher. He's the one averaging more rebounds and more assists. I mean, he's deserving. This may actually be maybe the best season of DeMar DeRozan's entire career, which is actually insane to think. There's only one other season that he had where he had a higher scoring average than he has right now. And um, it was the 2016-17 season with the Raptors. So, um, so much for him being washed up. Yeah, well... Let's talk now about another event during the All-Star Weekend where the overall pool was announced, but the rising stars, the rookies and sophomores, as well as G League players have been selected. And there's a new format this year. So there's going to be four different coaches that will be serving as coaches for uh, each of these teams. It's Rick Barry, Gary Payton, James Worthy, and Isaiah Thomas. And Essentially, from these pools of players, they're going to have four different rosters with seven players, uh, six NBA players and one G League player. And they're going to battle it out in a tournament style play where the winner will be the team that beats the other two teams. So one, what do you think of the overall draft pools? Are there any surprises or snubs that you see there? And then two, what do you think of the new format? So overall, if we're just looking at the overall pool, we can just give a, a quick rundown for the rookies. We've got Scotty Barnes, Josh Giddy, Herbert Jones, Evan Mobley, Alperin Sangoon, Franz Wagner, Kate Cunningham, Ayo Dasunmu, Chris Duarte, Jalen Green, Davion Mitchell, and Jalen Suggs. For the sophomores, we have Precious Achua, Sadiq Bey, Jaden McDaniels, Isaac Okoro, Jay Sean Tate, Isaiah Stewart, Cole Anthony, Desmond Bain, LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton, and Tyrese Maxey. Honestly, if I'm looking at these guys, I can't really think of anybody off the top of my head that they're missing. I mean, it seems to be that they've pretty much covered all their bases. They have everyone that I can think of off the top of my head that is a sophomore or rookie. I think that the format is awesome because I think in years past, um, it hasn't always necessarily been the case, but if you have just straight up the rookies going against the sophomores, it is somewhat of an unfair advantage unless you have 
you know, just a stellar rookie class that completely, you know, leaps the class before it in talent. But generally speaking, it's helpful to have a year in the league to, you know, get acclimated to playing at an NBA level for a full year. Whereas the rookies obviously are still figuring things out. A lot of times, more often than not, the sophomores would end up winning those challenges in the past. And I think that the new format is really fun because it offers the opportunity to kind of mix and match these talents and make it kind of like a mini March Madness. I think that everyone in basketball loves a good tournament. And I think that just inherently, when there's a tournament of any kind, your mind as an athlete and a competitor, your mindset changes because it goes from just an all-star exhibition type event. It goes from that mindset of, oh, we're just doing this for fun. We're messing around to, all right, this is a competition. Like, I want to win this. And I think that for the fans, it's always better when you're seeing players actually into the spirit of the competition, actually trying to compete, like the game's outcome actually matters. So I love the new format. I think it'll be really interesting to watch. Yeah, and I, I want to make a note of something else that I'm seeing with this is if you look at the rookies and sophomores, if your team has three players or even two players listed, you got to be happy about the direction of where your franchise potentially can go. For Toronto, they have Scotty Barnes and Precious Achua, both of those players playing big-time minutes for the organization, them just coming off of a win against uh, the Miami Heat. You have Cole Anthony, Jalen Suggs, and Franz Wagner, who are all for the Magic. You have Alperin Sengun, Jalen Green, and Deshaun Tate for the Rockets. So a lot of these organizations are coming in with three players or two players. And that's of the about, let's see, five, 10, let's call it 30 players in this pool. So they're coming in with 10% of the overall pool and... I think it's been some dark times for the or these organizations. They'll probably have some good draft capital in the next couple of years, but it's got to be looking promising to see your guys listed here. Additionally, I think the four guys who are part of the G League, this is like their draft combine on steroids. And so these four guys have the opportunity to show out on national television against current NBA talent. And if one of these guys walks away as the MVP of the, the competition, it's going to up his stock. And I think that's going to give the NBA a real advantage when recruiting guys out of high school to say, you're a blue chip recruit, come play, earn some money in the G League, boost up the G League's ratings, we'll put you into this Rising Stars game. And then if you walk away as MVP, similar to Marjan Beauchamp from last year, you might up your stock from 10th overall to third overall. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely changing the dynamic. And I think that it's great for the G League too. In, in the next coming years, I imagine that the impact of the G League is going to continue to grow. And we're actually going to start seeing this on TV, major discussions about top recruits deciding, all right, are they going to go to college or the G League? So... I think that that actually is going to be a growing storyline that is going to be interesting to follow the next coming seasons. And I think the NBA is doing this because they really are making a concerted effort to try to raise the perception of the G League and make it something that people do want to watch and make it kind of like a farm system for the league. So I think it's pretty cool. You know, it gives players another option. I'm all for student athletes 
having more options to make whatever decision they think is best for their professional development. So it's just one more avenue that you can take to try to make it in the league. Yeah, we will we will see how it continues to grow. But let's now shift our focus to talking about some of the regular season activities. Two top teams in the West are streaking. And no, not not that kind of streaking. The Suns, <laughs> 11 win streak, and the Warriors have a seven win streak. Obviously, these two teams have been talked about as that tier one upper echelon of teams. They continue to dominate in whatever division that they play against whatever deponent that they play. So which team do you feel has a more impressive win streak based off their latest slate of games? And which team do you think uh, will have their win streak come to an end? Well, I mean, I just got to go ahead and probably give it to the Suns because it's been the longer win streak. It's double digit. And I think that for the Warriors, a lot of the teams that they've played, it's been kind of like 50-50 competitive and give me games. But I guess what you can say about the Warriors is what's most impressive about it is they're doing it while Stephen Curry has been struggling. And they also won their most recent game without Stephen Curry at all. So it's just showing you again that depth that the Warriors have. They started out at first really struggling um, splitting their games in half, win-loss, win-loss without Draymond Green. And suddenly it seems that the rest of the team is starting to rally around Stephen Curry. And even though Curry hasn't been performing quite at the level that we expect, again, in the probably the greatest shooting slump of his entire career, but it's impressive that it hasn't really slowed their role. They're still winning games, like you mentioned, seven in a row. For the Suns, on the other hand, it's just business as usual. The Suns have seemingly had multiple winning streaks already this season that have been 10 or more games. So it's really nothing that crazy to imagine. Um, a lot of the teams that they've played lately are similar teams to what the Warriors have played. They've played the Nets, the Wolves, the Jazz, the Mavericks, the Spurs, all teams that they all have in common. So commonalities in their victories. But also I think that for the Suns, you have to give mention a little bit to the fact that this winning streak has been coming without DeAndre Ayton for these games. And I know that he's not someone that gets talked about very much, number one overall pick, but he kind of gets uh, forgotten. But this is somebody that is averaging 16.6 points per game, 10.4 rebounds per game, and has a PER of 22.38. He is a very, very effective center. He does everything that you want for a modern big man, and not to mention the impact that he makes on the defensive end. They've been able to do this because they basically picked up Bismack Biombo off the trash heap. Um, don't know where this guy went for a couple of years, but he's back now. And it's crazy that he was gone for all this time to begin with because he's only 29 years old. It's not like he's old. And he's been dominating since he's come in. And that's largely because he's been able to slide into such stability with a system like the Suns, where you have Chris Paul getting everybody into their spots, making life easy for everyone. He's become one of Chris Paul's favorite targets, and he's quietly been averaging 10.2 points per game, 7.5 rebounds per game, and has a PER of 22.89, which is about the same as Aiton's. So the Suns have been able to rattle off a double-digit win streak and at the same time integrate and find a piece that seemingly is going to be an asset to their rotation come playoff time. So I think that it's really nice for the Suns to have that. I probably expect that um, 
the Warriors winning streak ends sooner just because they've been winning a couple of more thrilling type games than the Suns have. It's been a little bit closer. And with Curry being so inconsistent lately with his outside shot, I think there's a higher likelihood that the Warriors probably will lose first of these two teams. I agree with you on the fact that I think the Suns has been more impressive and you really have to, I I know you mentioned all the players, but you have to give your tip, your hat to Monty Williams, who was a coach in new Orleans for a long time, uh, became an assistant coach, dealt with some adversity in life and then came to the Suns in a situation where they had good players, but they just weren't winning. And he's really instilled a winning culture into that franchise and is likely leading this team to a number one seed, uh, which I don't think has been done since the Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire days with Mike D'Antoni. So hats off to Monty Williams and the job that he's done there for really getting this group of guys to rally around him and doing so with no matter who they throw in there. Like you said, they pick up Bismack Biombo and replace DeAndre Ayton with him and seemingly just continues to dominate. But I think that their winning streak ends tomorrow on your birthday in Atlanta. I think that Trey Young <laughs> is going to ice them over in Hotlanta. And uh, I think their winning streak is going to come to a close there. And if it doesn't, then I think their winning streak will come to a close either in Chicago or Philadelphia. They have a back-to-back against two of the toughest Eastern Conference teams. And conversely, the Warriors are playing Sacramento tomorrow, then Oklahoma City, then Utah. And the when they play Utah, uh, the Suns will have already played against Atlanta, Chicago, and Philadelphia. So I think there's just more opportunity for the Suns to lose more quickly as compared to the Warriors. Yeah, I can see that. Tougher schedule. It's just, for me, the volatility of Stephen Curry shooting. I mean, he's he did just come off a, a pretty big game where he did drop 40. So who knows? Maybe he's finally out of his shooting slump. If that's the case, then your prediction will probably come true. But if he continues to be up and down, I think that the Suns keep this thing going. Well, we'll see who continues to be hot. But to our last segment before plead their case, the trade deadline, February 10th. Mark your calendars. It's Next week, there's been a lot of rumblings about teams and what they want to do before the deadline and how they're going to gear up here before the All-Star break to really dominate in the second half. But who do you think is the most likely to get traded? Or give me a couple names. So it's actually been really surprisingly quiet. Um, You would have expected that by now. At least one kind of big shakeup would have happened, but nothing crazy up to this point. For me personally, I think that the most likely person to be moved is probably going to end up being someone like a DeMontis Sabonis. And if it's not him, then it's probably someone else on the Pacers. Just because I think that the Pacers, they have, I mean, I've talked about it on a, on a previous episode, but they probably have the type of talent available on their team where no matter what you're looking for, they're going to have a piece that probably can fill that need for you with the versatility of options that they have. They have obviously DeMontis Bonus, Miles Turner, Karis LeVert, possibly even Malcolm Brogdon. These are all guys that are probably in in an NBA 2K video game considered to be at least a B minus at worst. So these are all guys that can help your team. They all have contracts that are 
I guess, tradable. You can say none of them have such a crazy deal that the idea of making the cap work is a nightmare. And I think that DeMontis Sabonis, of all the candidates available to be traded, he's probably the only established all-star that is likely to be traded just because I know that Ben Simmons is out there, but Philadelphia has been so reluctant to move him and has made that trade so complicated that it really is hard to see if this is going to happen because they seem adamant that they might get better return for him in free agency. And now that the Sixers are playing so well without him and have moved up to second in the East, they could conceivably keep playing without his services and keep winning games. So for them, there's not really an immediate rush right now. It would be nice to get something big for him, but they're, they're clearly not going to just jump into anything. It seems to me like the Pacers are easily the most motivated seller on the market. And I think that they really want to make a deal. And I know that a lot of teams have been interested in Sabonis. A lot of teams have been calling about him. So I think that he's probably the most likely guy to go. Yeah, I think you're right in Sabonis. And I also think that Jeremy Grant is another name who is likely to go from the Pistons. But I think when you look at the teams who are going to have fire sales, it definitely is the Pacers, as well as I think the Wizards. There's been some rumblings of trading Montrezl Harrell as well as trading um, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, who hasn't really panned out. So I think they're gauging the market to see how they can start to offload some of their players. And it'll be interesting to see how they retool with Bradley Beal coming into uh, his contract year. I know he said that he wants to stay in D.C. forever, and they look like they were off to a, a great start to the start of the season, but now they've gone back to their ways and how are they going to surround him with the right talent for him to succeed before he says, I, I'm done, I'm going somewhere else? Yeah, I wonder. The Wizards are all over the place. You hear rumors that they're selling, but you also hear rumors that they're buying. They've also been one of the teams rumored to be interested in acquiring Sabonis. So even though they've gotten seemingly no indication from Bradley Beal that that is someone that he would want to play with, the Wizards seem... Um, also set on trying to make this Beal thing work. And they know that they're going to need to pair him with at least one other all-star to make this thing work. So it's like I said, he's the only all-star that's readily available on the market. That's, you know, pretty reasonable to be had. Everyone else is going to be a complicated negotiation. And I, I understand what you're saying about Jeremy Grant. The timeline doesn't really add up for Jeremy Grant to peak with that young core that they're working with. Cade Cunningham, as of late, has really come on, and he is looking the part of someone that is a number one pick, potentially now elevated himself into that rookie of the year conversation and now has to be firmly considered as someone that may win it, um, given how he's been playing. They got Sadiq Bey, who's been coming on of late. Again, um, Mitchell, not Mitchell Robinson, um, Isaiah Stewart, another guy who um, has been a little bit better than some people would have anticipated. So, I just think that for them, all those young guys, they're going to have a different timeline than Jeremy Grant. So I can see why they would want to move him. But the issue is as many, as much as many people want Jeremy Grant, and I think that he probably is the best free or not free agent, but I think that he's probably the best um, trade candidate that's readily available of, of all of them actually. But the issue is that the Pistons don't seem as motivated in moving him. It has to be to them for the right deal because they still see him as an asset that can help them win in the short-term future. It's not like he's old. He's still in his 20s. So um, I think that for them, 
they're not going to move Jeremy Grant just like that. They're going to wait and see and see if they can get a deal that's worth their while. And then on the other end, um, you can never forget about Christian Wood um, in Houston, who is a team that I've heard Miami has been kicking the tires on a little bit. So that'll be interesting to see. Miami also has a logjam of pieces with a bunch of guards that seemingly they're going to have to get rid of some of these guys. I mean, that Victor Oladipo, who apparently has been practicing and has been looking solid, they're going to have to give him minutes, even if they don't intend to keep him because no one's going to trade for him if they don't see him on the court. So he's going to get minutes. They have Gabe Vincent. They have Kyle Lowry, who's eventually going to end up coming back. They have Duncan Robinson. They have Max Struess, who is the second Duncan Robinson, probably more consistent. And then you have Tyler Hero, who by next season is going to be causing drama in your organization when he's not starting. So are you realistically going to start Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero in your future? Probably not. I don't think that makes for a very good defensive perimeter. And I don't think that that really is a team that would work given that the Heat also have to start Bam Adebayo, PJ Tucker, Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry. I think that they got to get rid of Duncan Robinson too. So watch out for Miami Heat also trying to package Duncan Robinson with maybe some of these other young pieces and coming in with a surprise trade just because I'm sure they're aware of that ticking time bomb that's coming next year with the hero off the bench situation. Yeah, I agree with you. And I I think now to talk a little bit about who isn't traded, um, I think this whole Ben Simmons drama leads to uh, Ben Simmons staying with the 76ers and maybe getting traded in the off season. But I think he's continuing to hurt his trade value. And I think Daryl Morey is playing this one uh, too poorly at this point. I think he's asking for too much. And the longer that Ben Simmons isn't on the court, the longer teams know that he's not in basketball shape and know that he's away from the game of basketball. So the questions will continue to come of how dedicated is he? How much does he want to play? What kind of conditioning is he in? And their ask of five first round picks and three young players and two swaps and whatever is going to dwindle to maybe a one for one trade with a team. So I think Ben Simmons stays and I think everybody on the Lakers stays. Maybe they make a small deal to trade Kent Bazemore or DeAndre Jordan somewhere to open up a roster spot to get somebody on the buyout market. But I think that the main people on their team are all going to stay. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, Lakers fans. I don't know who you think that you're fooling, but if you look at a lot of these Lakers forums and discussions among fans, you see them speculating all these packages of how they're going to move Russell Westbrook with Taylor Horton Tucker as if he's an asset. I mean, at this point, I don't think that a team would give a bag of basketballs for Taylor Horton Tucker. I mean, the Lakers at this point, as much as LeBron tried to campaign for him and publicly say, oh, he's a, He's a talented player, all this stuff. I think that anybody with two eyes can see that Taylor Horton Tucker is not a trade asset. And given that they don't really have any trade assets to package with Russell Westbrook's gigantic contract, he is going to stay there. He is not going anywhere. Russell Westbrook is stuck with the Lakers. They're going to have to figure this thing out. So that'll be um, a lot of fun to see for the rest of the season. Like you said, the Ben Simmons thing probably doesn't end up happening just because, like you said, Daryl Morey's a little bit crazy. He's already turned down really good packages from the Kings, 
from the Pistons, and most recently now apparently from the Hawks, which is a team that now has shown their hand. The Hawks had a proposed deal where they would have received Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris. The 76ers would have gotten John Collins, Bogdan Bogdanovich, and three first-round picks. And they still declined that, even with the three first-rounders. So it's looking like Ben Simmons isn't going anywhere. But keep an eye out for John Collins. He's a guy that, for the right price, may be on the move. Seemingly not really the best fit with Trey Young, even though you would imagine that they would be. Um, he's a guy that may be on the move and potentially has all-star potential in there. Potentially has potential. Potentially has potential. Well, we are potentially on to our last segment, which is plead their case. I will ask you a series of questions and you will respond pleading the case of the individual situation. To start, Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, Big Diesel, claimed that the people should cut the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, some slack due to injuries. To which Dwayne Wade, a co-owner of the Jazz, replied, what kind of excuse is that? The Miami Heat are number one and have had the most injuries all season. Plead Dwayne's case on why Shaq, the big ticket, should not be defending a team due to injuries. Honestly, I, I don't think that Shaq can make the excuse at all because this is a team that knew when they were getting into this thing that their whole core was going to be revolving around a Kevin Durant that was returning from injury, a James Harden that had largely been out of shape, and a Kyrie Irving that has always been injury prone and when not injury prone just is subject to not show up for games because of outside reasons, um, such as, for example, his vaccination status currently. So this was something that was a risk that you knew you took on. You knew as the Nets that this was going to be a team that a lot of the time was not all going to be together. And this is not the first season that the Nets have been this way. Over the two years that the Nets have had these pieces, I think that they've probably had all three of these guys of their core together for less than probably 30% of all of their games. So this is the status quo for the Nets, not to mention when Kevin Durant was in earlier, um, they had a lot of the same injuries and they were number one then. So it's not that you can't win with injuries. It's just that you haven't been able to figure out a way with your current roster construction to win. I mean, this team, James Harden has complained about the variable lineups it seems that Steve Nash is always switching it up in the way that he's always going with the hot hand. And it seems that that doesn't work for every type of player. Eric Spolstra is able to plug different players seemingly on the fly and have them seemingly adjust to a new style of play on a game-to-game -game basis. But that is something that starts from the top down. I think that that all comes from the type of leadership that you have. And when you have everybody on the team fully invested on the outcome, fully invested in giving their all in practice and trying to work out the kinks behind the scenes, you're going to get a better product on the court. But I think that for the Nets, this is a team that when you guys have your leaders being Kevin Durant, a guy that has never been known to be a vocal leader or hold anyone accountable, James Harden, the same thing, and Kyrie Irving, the same thing, you have all three of your leading guys in the locker room are guys that have probably never before in their career been known to be a vocal leader or someone that can get the best out of everyone else, then you have a problem. So I think that the reason why the Nets aren't playing better is largely due to the leadership that they have on that team. If you look at the Warriors over in the West, similar example, the Warriors have had injuries 
um, throughout the course of the season. Stephen Curry has had his number one running mate in Clay Thompson all year, been gone. Draymond Green is gone right now, and they're still on a seven-game winning streak. So I don't think that you can make an excuse. Injuries are definitely a part of the game. You have to adjust, and I think it all comes down to the leaders that you have. Yeah, I think it is uh, an indictment um, on the on the leaders, and I think Steve Nash has done a fine job being a coach. But I think if if you look at the the Nets, their situation isn't any different than another team in the league or a team that has less talent on their roster than the Nets do, which is many teams in the league. And so, teams being able to win with guys in, with guys out—that's just part of the game. And if you're I mean, look unable- at the Bulls, the Bulls right. have the same situation. You, I mean, we can go on and on about teams that have had players out with health and safety protocol, injuries, what have you. This year, depth is part of the game. So, and so is being able to grind through adversity. Exactly. So I don't think it is an excuse at all. I think if anything, it just shows teams that are stronger from a player development and coaching standpoint, as opposed to teams that are weak in that area and really rely on their star players being the star players. And that's, that's the end of that. But Moving on, the Raptors are now sitting in eighth after beginning the year, expecting a rebuild after Kyle Lowry left, and they overall just are relying on a young core, young talent. Talked about that earlier in the Rising Stars. So plead their case for why they can make the playoffs with their current roster. So, I mean, this team has been really impressive of late. It's not just the fact that they're in eighth right now, it's also the teams that they've been beating recently. They're 26 and 23 right now, but they've been beating some tough competition. They beat the Heat twice in that span. They beat the Hawks, who, I mean, aren't a great team record-wise, but have been playing well of late. They beat the Bulls, or uh, sorry, they lost the Bulls, but they beat the Hornets. Um, they beat the Bucks. This is a team that has been pretty competitive, relying on a bunch of young guys. I think that Scotty Barnes obviously is a player that is going to be in contention for rookie of the year all year long. And when you see him play, you can tell that he just has that it factor. He doesn't play like a rookie mentally. He doesn't get scared of guarding the other team's best guy or having to go against, you know, a 10 time all-star, whatever the case may be. He steps up to that level and he actually seems to play better in close situations. And when the game is on the line, he definitely is a guy that is a leader And I predict it's going to be a future all-star at some point, averaging 14.6 points per game, 7.8 rebounds, 3.4 assists. And I think the playmaking aspect of his game is still very much untapped, um, shooting overall 46.9%. But I think that one of the major stories, though, if we're going to talk about this team and why they have been so good, not only has it been because Pascal Siakam is having a resurgent year or because Scotty Barnes is giving you a lot more production than you've expected as a rookie. I think that one of the major factors in turning the tide of late has been the emergence of Gary Trent Jr., who honestly has been on a tear. This guy is now averaging 18.2 points per game overall, but in his last 10, he's averaging 26.7 points per game, and he's now got five straight games where he scored at least 30 points and made at least five three-pointers made. So this guy definitely making the Portland Trail Blazers regret what they did. And I think that um, 
as good of a player as Norman Powell is, I think that the player that Gary Trent will become will wind up being much better than peak Norman Powell ever was. So I think it's really impressive what the Raptors have been able to do to get so many young guys to play winning basketball ahead of schedule. And I definitely think that it's something that can be sustainable. They're going to be in a battle all year long because in the East, after the sixth seed, there's basically a log jam between the seven, eight, nine, and 10. All four of those teams, the Hawks, Celtics, Raptors, and Hornets, um, are going to be fighting for those last two spots. And they're probably going to be in contention for it all year long with the Knicks having an outside chance. But out of all those teams, Raptors, Celtics, those are the two with the best differential. They have a positive differential. And I think that I, the, I mean, I can imagine that the best basketball is probably in front for these Raptors, given that they're so young, they'll probably continue to play better as the year goes on. Yeah. And a player you didn't mention there, Fred Van Vliet, who has been consistent all year uh, this year, averaging higher point totals than his last three years. He's now at 21.5 per game. And he's doing so while averaging more assists per game as well as more rebounds. And he's more effective from the field as well. So I think Fred Van Vliet is also having a great year, great season, and is another piece in this Raptors franchise um, as they continue to grow. Yeah, I got to, I mean, I got to admit, when they gave Fred Van Vliet that contract, I mean, the largest, uncon- the largest contract ever for uh, an undrafted player. I didn't know that that was the smartest move given that Fred Van Vliet is a guy who is listed as a shooting guard, but is only six foot one is not really a great athlete by any means. Um, And he's not really an elite defender. At least you wouldn't expect him to be, but he's definitely somebody that holds his own on that end just because of the pure effort. And I think that his shot making ability, which Honestly, I expect to take a little bit of a drop off when Kyle Lowry left has really improved. He's actually shooting 39% from three on 9.9 attempts per game and is also shooting 41% from the field, 21 points per game. As you mentioned, seven assists per game. This is a guy that right now you could argue is probably playing better basketball than Kyle Lowry is. So probably the Raptors end up getting the better of those two point guards in the parting of ways. Yeah. Well, on to the last segment, talking about a point guard. Rajon Rondo called Darius Garland the best closer in the game. Plead his case for why he's right. So, I mean, Darius Garland obviously has been having a career year. He's really come on. Having Colin Sexton go down was probably a blessing in disguise because it put the ball in Garland's hands and has allowed him to be the primary decision maker. He's a guy that likely will make the all-star team in my estimation. Um, He's got the Cavaliers rolling. They're way ahead of schedule. They're 31 and 20. They're not just a good team. They're a great team. And his intelligence, I mean, this is coming from a guy, Rajon Rondo, who is by many considered to be one of the most cerebral, intelligent players in the game. So even though Darius Garland, if you look at it in fourth quarter scoring, you're not going to find him you know, in the leaders for fourth quarter scoring, you probably won't see it in the stat sheet, but it's his decision-making. He seems to know what his team needs in the fourth quarter, whether it's a timely drive, um, pulling up for three, getting the right guy open. 
And he's not the kind of pastor that's only going to make the pass that he gets credit for. He's a willing passer. He'll make the hockey assist. He puts his team in a position to win. And I think that having that kind of offense where you know that guys are willing to make the right play coming from your best players down to your role players, that gets everybody motivated to cut and play the right way. Cause you know that if you get open, you're going to get the ball. So Darius Garland shooting 36.9% from three on 6.8 attempts, 19.8 points per game, 8.2 assists per game. I mean, he has been playing some great basketball lately. I can't say that I'd say he's the number one closer in the game, but coming from Rajon Rondo, a guy who's played with a lot of greats, if he's saying it, I really don't think that I recall him saying this kind of compliment to anyone else. It must be some truth to the fact that Darius Garland must be one of the best closers in the game. Yeah, and I I do think that it holds weight coming from a guy who has played with the likes of Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, uh, LeBron, LeBron James, James. Trey Young. Like he's played with a lot of older, younger talent that's been great over the course of Kawhi their career. Wayne Wade, <laughs> Kawhi Leonard, um, Jimmy Butler, and so Rajon Rondo has had the opportunity to play with a lot, a lot of great talent, and. I think that this just goes to show, like you said, the talent of Darius Garland and where he is getting to as a player, having a mentor and coach in Rajon Rondo is only going to help him more so. And people always talk about a lot of drama was stirred up when Rondo is being traded from the Celtics to the Mavericks. And obviously he had a contentious battle with Rick Carlisle, but when he was with the Bulls, a lot of the young players rallied around Rondo. And you saw him help Trey Young. You see him now helping with these Cleveland Cavalier guards. And you know that these point guards who are floor generals, similar to a Jason Kidd or now with Rajon Rondo, I think Rajon Rondo is going to be one of those guys that maybe he does it in the first year, like Jason Kidd or even Derek Fisher did. But I think he's going to get into coaching and I think he's going to jump into it immediately after the game, whether it's an assistant role or immediately into a full-time role. I think Rondo has the uh, basketball IQ floor vision and overall is a player's coach that will be able to get the best out of his players. So I hope he does because I think it'll be great for the game. Yeah, I would love to see it too. I think the main thing is going to be for him if he has the patience Rajon Rondo, been known throughout his career at different times to be a moody guy, someone that every now and then can potentially rub some guys the wrong way when he gets a little bit aggressive. But, you know, it could work. Sometimes that fire is exactly what you need as a coach. So I think that obviously if he wants to do it, the game will be more than willing to welcome him into their coaching ranks. All right. Well, with that, that is the end of the show. Like us, subscribe to us and all of your favorite podcast players. Rate and review us as well. Follow us on social media channels, Court of Opinion on Instagram and Courts of Opinion on Twitter. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned. Court of Opinion.